Just real quickly before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to remind you to share, like, and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it. And please, give it a five-star rating as it helps the show to beat the big tech algorithms. Also, if you love the Red Pill Patriot Show, please consider becoming a patron subscriber for as little as $10 a month. For your subscription, you'll receive early access to each weekly episode, access to exclusive content, and many other perks and benefits. Just visit the show's website at www.redpillpatriot.net and click on the red support the show button in the upper right hand corner to be taken to our subscriber page. While you're there, be sure to check out the other great content and get caught up on any of the past episodes of the show you may have missed. Remember, support what you love or it will go away. Thanks everyone and have a great day. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember... All I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Hello, everyone. This week, I want to start the show off by saying one simple word to you, and that word is abortion. Now, when I said that, what thoughts and feelings did that word evoke within you? You know, there are millions in this country and around the world on both sides of the issue, and I have heard and listened to and discussed more than my fair share on more than one occasion with with lots of people. On one hand, we have people who feel an abortion is a woman's right, and she can do with her body whatever she wants. It should be available whenever she wants, and there should be no limits as to when she can choose to have an abortion. On the other side of the argument, there are those that feel once pregnant, a woman is now carrying an innocent life that is growing within her, and that that most precious life should be protected at all costs. Today, I will be diving deep into this issue and hope that we can all collectively learn and grow as we take a look at all aspects of the topic of abortion on this, the Red Pill Patriot Show. <laughs> Hey there once again, Red Pill Patriot fans. I am so very grateful that you and I are back together once again to tackle and discuss this very serious and very important issue. I want you to know from the outset that I am not here to preach to you or anyone else or to tell them what they can or cannot do or what they must do. I certainly have my beliefs when it comes to abortion and I'm very passionate about them. And if you are easily triggered, you may want to turn off this episode now, because I will be sharing with you truth, and if that is hard for you to hear and accept, you have the ability to stop listening now. However, 
I do hope you will choose to stay and listen to the entire show because the only way we learn is when we open ourselves up and listen to those who have a differing thought and a way of looking at things than we ourselves do. The first thing that I want you to know is that I am a very strong pro-life advocate. I am a father and I love every one of my children. Additionally, I am an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and yes, I am a Christian. I have a very strong testimony that we are all children of God. We all have a purpose here upon this earth, and one part of that purpose is to prove ourselves worthy to return home to the presence of God, our Heavenly Father, and our brother, Jesus Christ, once our time here on earth comes to a close. I believe that every single person and every single life is precious and valuable and deserves a chance to be born, live their life as they see fit, and hopefully return home once their life ends. Now you may believe differently than I do, and that's absolutely okay. It's wonderful, and I respect your right to do so, like hopefully you respect my right to believe what I want. And I'm not here to debate doctrine with anyone else. I simply wanted you to know a little bit about my core beliefs in hopes that you will understand why I'm a pro-life advocate. Now that you know that, I want to talk a little bit about the history of abortion in the United States. Now by no means is this a concise, all-encompassing history of abortion in the United States, but in doing research for this week's episode, I did come across a great article entitled Abortion History in the U.S. at ThoughtCo.com. And this is, like I said, it's a brief history of the abortion controversy in the United States. And it was uh, first published May 4th of 2019, so it's fairly recent. Um, Rather than paraphrase it, I just want to share this with you, so I'm going to read it to you, basically. And it starts out, it says, In the United States, abortion laws began to appear in the 1820s, forbidding abortion after the fourth month of pregnancy. Before that time, abortion was not illegal, though it was often unsafe for the woman whose pregnancy was being terminated. Through the efforts primarily of physicians, the American Medical Association, and legislators as part of consolidating authority over medical procedures and displacing midwives, most abortions in the U.S. had been outlawed by 1900. Illegal abortions were still frequent after such laws were instituted, though abortions became less frequent during the reign of the Comstock Law, which essentially banned birth control information and devices as well as abortion. Some early feminists, like Susan B. Anthony, wrote against abortion. They opposed abortion, which at the time was un- which was an unsafe medical procedure for women, endangering their health and life. These feminists believed that only the achievement of women's equality and freedom would end the need for abortion. Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote in The Revolution, quote, But where shall it be found, at least begin, if not in the complete enfranchisement and elevation of a woman? Period, end quote. They wrote that prevention was more important than punishment and blamed circumstances, laws, and the men they believed drove women to abortions. Matilda Joslyn Gage wrote in 1868, quote, I hesitate not to assert that most of this crime of child murder, abortion, infanticide lies at the door of the male sex. End quote. Later, feminists defended safe and effective birth control when that, when that became available. As another way to prevent abortion, most of today's abortion rights organizations also state that safe and effective birth control, adequate sex education, available health care, and the ability to support children adequately are essentials to preventing the need for many abortions. 
By 1965, all 50 states banned abortion, with some, expect, with, with some exceptions which varied by state. To save the life of the mother in cases of rape or incest, or if the fetus was deemed deformed. Liberals, liberal, liberalization efforts. Boy, that's a tongue twister for me. Sorry. Liberals, liberalization efforts. Groups like the National Abortion Rights Action League and the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion worked to liberalize anti-abortion laws. After the thalidomide drug tragedy revealed in 1962, where a drug prescribed to many pregnant women for morning sickness and as a sleeping pill caused serious birth defects, activism to make abortion easier escalated. Enter in the Roe v. Wade landmark case that most of us know. And the Supreme Court in 1973 uh, declared most existing state abortion laws unconstitutional. This decision ruled out any legislative interference in the first trimester of pregnancy and put limits on what restrictions could be passed on abortions in later stages of pregnancy. While many celebrated the decision, others, especially in the Roman Catholic Church and in theologically conservative Christian groups, opposed the change. The term pro-life and pro-choice evolved as the most common self-chosen names of the two movements, one to outlaw most abortion and the other to eliminate most legislative restrictions on abortions. Early opposition to the lifting of abortion restrictions included such organizations as the Eagle Forum led by Phyllis Schlafly. Schlafly. Today, there are many national pro-life organizations which vary in their goals and strategies. Opposition to abortions has increasingly turned physical and even violent. First in the organized blocking of access to clinics which provided abortion services, organized primarily by Operation Rescue, founded in 1984 and led by Randall Terry. On Christmas Day 1984, three abortion clinics were bombed and those convicted called the bombings, quote, a birthday gift for Jesus, Jesus, end quote. Within the churches and other groups opposing abortion, the issue of clinic protests has become increasingly controversial as many who oppose abortions move to separate themselves from those who propose violence as an acceptable solution. In the early part of the 2000 to 2010 decade, major conflict over abortion laws was over termination of late pregnancies termed partial birth abortions by those who oppose them. Pro-choice advocates maintain that such abortions are to save the life or health of the mother or terminate pregnancies where the fetus cannot survive birth or cannot survive much after birth. Pro-life advocates maintain that the fetuses may be saved and that many of these abortions are done in cases that aren't hopeless. The Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act passed Congress in 2003 and was signed by President George W. Bush. The law was upheld in 2007 by the Supreme Court decision in Gonzalez v. Carthart. In 2004, President Bush signed the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, permitting a second charge of murder covering the fetus if a pregnant woman is killed. The law specifically exempts mothers and doctors from being charged in any cases related to abortions. Dr. George R. Tiller, the medical director at a clinic in Kansas, which was one of the only three clinics in the country to perform late-term abortions, was assassinated in May 2009 at his church. The killer was sentenced to t in 2010 to the maximum sentence available in Kansas, life imprisonment with no parole possible for 50 years. The murder raised questions about the role of repeatedly using strong language to denounce Tiller on talk shows. The most prominent example cited was repeated description of Tiller as a baby killer by Fox News talk show host Bill O'Reilly, who later denied having used the term, despite video evidence, and described the criticism as having the real agenda of hating Fox News. 
the clinic where Tiller worked closed permanently after his murder. Most recently, abortion conflicts have been played out more often at the state level with attempts to change the assumed and legal date of viability to remove exception to remove exemptions such as rape or incest from abortion bans to require ultrasounds before any termination including invasive vaginal procedures or to increase the requirements for doctors and buildings performing abortions such restrictions played a role in elections as of this writing no child born before 21 weeks of pregnancy has survived more than a short period of time it's a lot and there's a lot of information there, but I think it gives a, a good brief history. But there's still more when we talk about the history of, of abortion, and in particular, Planned Parenthood, who is the largest um, company, organization, uh, performing abortions in the country. And we want to talk about that, but also we want to talk about the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger. And we'll do that when we come back. If you are one of our amazing patron subscribers, then you've discovered the wonderful platform upon which the Red Pill Patriot Show community is built. That platform is Locals.com, and I'd like to share with you why they were our first choice when building the community that our fans turn to on a daily basis. You see, Locals.com is a subscription-based community solution that gives power to the creators, not to big platforms. On Locals, the creator has the opportunity to truly connect with their passionate fans who want to support them. You as the creator can strengthen your relationship with those passionate fans by removing the middleman and by creating a community that brings your brand and your business to the next level. Additionally, the creator has the ability to set the rules for their community unlike YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter who have shown time and time again to have very inconsistent and unfair moderation. Creators can also build their network by creating with other creators that you want to be associated with. And believe me, there is real power in greater numbers. For example, have you heard the name Bridget Phetasy, Michael Malice, or Andy No? How about Dave Rubin of The Rubin Report? All these great creators are building communities on Locals.com, and so should you. So go to Locals.com today and set up your free account. Your fans will thank you. All right, everyone, welcome back. And I think it's time we introduce you to uh, Margaret Sanger and talk a little bit about her and her role with Planned Parenthood. So by way of a little factual information about her, uh, Margaret Sanger was born on September 14th, 1879, and she died on September 6th, 1966. She opened the first birth control clinic in the United States in 1916 and established organizations that evolved into the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. While researching for the show, I found the Human Life International website. Now, on this website, there is an article entitled The Strange World of Margaret Sanger's Birth Control Review, Part 1. I'll provide a link for it on our YouTube page, under this episode, so you can look this up for yourself if you want to. But the author wrote the article after having purchased a complete set of Margaret Sanger's journal, The Birth Control Review, which consisted of roughly 5,631 pages of Margaret Sanger's beliefs and those that believed like her. Now, here's what I learned, and some of this is a direct quote from the article. 
First, um, according to this article, Margaret Sanger uh, associated with racists and anti-Semites, people who despised everyone who was not a Nordic god or goddess, and those who demanded coercive eugenics programs to eliminate, quote, lesser, end quote, humans. The whole bunch, of course, participated in continuous vicious attacks upon the Catholic Church. Now, if you're not familiar with the term eugenics, let me tell you what it is according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. And if you're a young listener, you have no idea what the Encyclopedia Britannica is, but rest assured, um, it's a reliable source, and I looked it up online. So according to the Encyclopedia, eugenics is the selection of desired heritable characteristics in order to improve future generations, typically in reference to humans. The term eugenics was coined in 1883 by British explorer and natural scientist Francois Galton, who who was influenced by Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection. Good old Charles Darwin. Don't get me started there. Anyways, it goes on to say that uh, the theory of natural selection, which advocated a system that would allow, quote, the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable, end quote. Social Darwinism, the popular theory in the late 19th century that life for humans in society was ruled by survival the fittest, helped advance eugenics into serious scientific study in the early 1900s. By World War I, many scientific authorities and political leaders supported eugenics. However, it ultimately failed as a science in the 1930s and 40s when the assumptions of eugenicists became heavily criticized and the Nazis used eugenics to support the extermination of of entire races. So, notably, you need to understand there that eugenics were embraced and used to justify the Holocaust of the Jewish people by the Nazis. So, eugenics is not a good thing. Okay, but Margaret Sanger was a hardcore eugenicist. In her journal, um, it was primarily devoted to the legalization and spread of voluntary birth control. However, the main theme running through the birth control review was eugenics. Thus, the masthead of the journal was birth control to create a race of thoroughbreds. The pseudoscience of eugenics was taken very seriously in the first half of the 20th century and was taught in hundreds of colleges and universities using scores of textbooks written by distinguished scholars. Uh, Mr. A.P. Pilloy, writing in the Birth Control Review describes both negative and positive eugenics when he said, quote, Broadly speaking, the aims of eugenics are two, to prevent the unfit from leaving any descendants and to encourage the multiplication of the more fit and useful citizens, end quote. The Birth Control Review frequently highlighted the mission of its parent organization, the Birth Control League, <clears throat> and its aim to promote eugenic birth selection throughout the United States so that there may be more well-born and fewer ill-born children, a stronger, healthier, and more intelligent race. Honestly, people, if you were to read that today and not know where it was coming from or think it was a current quote, you would be up in arms, especially on the left. But yet, at this time period, in the early 1900s, this was considered acceptable thought. One of the quotes that I found while reading this article would appear to sum up Margaret Sanger's thoughts and beliefs quite succinctly, and she said, quote, Before eugenicists and others who are laboring for racial betterment can succeed, they must first clear the way for birth control. 
Like the advocates of birth control, the eugenicists, for instance, are seeking to assist the race toward the elimination of the unfit. Birth control of itself, by freeing the reproductive instinct from its present chains, will be a better race. Eugenics without birth control seems to us a house built upon the sands. It is at the mercy of the rising stream of the unfit, end quote. Now I'd like to turn to a quick little clip here where you'll get to hear 21 of the most famous quotes by Margaret Sanger herself. These are things that she has said and they've been researched and verified for their veracity. So I'm going to turn this on here real quickly and just let you listen to this. Again, the link will be posted on our YouTube page uh, in the comment section or the description page there below the podcast episode. So if you want to see this for yourself, go to the uh, the Red Pill Patriot YouTube channel and look for it under this episode. She said that the most merciful thing that a family could do to one of its young is to kill it. Well, I'm sure that was taken out of context. In this video, I'm going to show you who Margaret Sanger really was and why she founded Planned Parenthood. These 21 quotes by Margaret Sanger reveal the wicked roots of the abortion movement and expose the twisted mindset behind the present-day culture of death. In her own words, Sanger peddles racism, eugenics, contraception, and abortion, while demonstrating a visceral hatred for children, parenthood, marriage, and the Catholic Church. Every quote I'm about to give you has been verified and is well documented. But for my view, I believe that there should be no more babies. The most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. We don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. I was escorted to the platform, was introduced, and began to speak. In the end, through simple illustrations, I believed I had accomplished my purpose. A dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. Do you believe there is such a thing as a as sin? Well, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being, practically. Delinquents, prisoners, all sorts of things just mark when they're born. That, to me, is the greatest sin that people can, can commit. The most serious evil of our times is that of encouraging the bringing into the world of large families. The most immoral practice of the day is breeding too many children. Eugenics without birth control seems to us a house builded upon the sands. It is at the mercy of the rising stream of the unfit. As an advocate of birth control, I wish to take advantage of the present opportunity to point out that the unbalance between the birth rate of the unfit and the fit, admittedly the greatest present menace to civilization, can never be rectified by the inauguration of a cradle competition between these two classes. The most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. No more children should be born when the parents, though healthy themselves, find that their children are physically or mentally defective. A marriage license shall in itself give husband and wife only the right to a common household 
and not the right to parenthood. No woman shall have the legal right to bear a child, and no man shall have the right to become a father without a permit for parenthood. Permits for parenthood shall be issued upon application by city, county, or state authorities to married couples, providing they are financially able to support the expected child, have the qualifications needed for proper rearing of the child, have no transmissible diseases, and, on the woman's part, no medical indication that the maternity is likely to result in death or permanent injury to health. No permit for parenthood shall be valid for more than one birth. Apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring. These two words, birth control, sum up our whole philosophy. It means the release and cultivation of the better elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Organized charity itself is the symptom of a malignant social disease. My own position is that the Catholic doctrine is illogical, not in accord with science, and definitely against social welfare and race improvement. All of our problems are the result of overbreeding among the working class. Knowledge of birth control is essentially moral. Its general, though prudent, practice must lead to a higher individuality and ultimately to a cleaner race. Feeble-mindedness perpetuates itself from the ranks of those who are blandly indifferent to their racial responsibilities. And it is largely this type of humanity we are now drawing upon to populate our world for the generations to come. In this orgy of multiplying and replenishing the earth, this type is pari passu multiplying and perpetuating those direst evils in which we must, if civilization is to survive, extirpate by the very roots. Birth control itself, often denounced as a violation of natural law, is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit, of preventing the birth of defectives or of those who will become defectives. If we are to make racial progress, this development of womanhood must precede motherhood in every individual woman. Wow. If you're anything like me, many of those quotes probably chilled you to the bone. Um, very much laced with hate. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty hardcore. But that's who Margaret Sanger was. And I would like to note for you that, that you heard a lot about many of those quotes involving two words, birth control. And uh, anything you read online, uh, unless you do a lot of research, will say that Margaret Sanger was just a birth control activist. Well, as we get into the show, you're going to find out that the majority of the abortions that are performed today are not medically necessary, but simply a means of birth control. 
Now, moving on, what I'd like to do is share some statistics with you that are based upon the most recent data that we have in the United States according to the American Life League regarding abortion. I will again provide the link in the show notes uh, for, or the, for this episode on our YouTube channel. So here we go. First, let's talk about since 1973 when abortion was made legal um, under Roe versus Wade. So since 1973 through 2018, there have been 61.8 million plus abortions performed. 61.8 million abortions performed. To put this in perspective, I have a quick question that I would like to ask. Does anyone listening to this show have any idea or know exactly how many countries there are in the world? If you don't, uh, let me just share with you that there are currently 235 countries globally as of 2020. Now, of those 235 countries, only 22 of them have a national population greater than 60 million. So if we were to kill the same number of people in each of the 235 countries on Earth, uh, we'd be left with just 22 countries that would have any type of population at all. You see, if that were to happen, Italy would cease to exist, as well as South Africa, Kenya, South Korea, Spain, and Argentina, just to name a few. And like I said, you know, if we took the number of abortions that had been performed, that would wipe out literally 213 countries' populations, gone. Who in their right mind would be okay with wiping out the entire population of 213 countries? No one, hopefully. But yet, millions of people have absolutely no problem with the number of children that have been killed via abortion. Currently, there are 186 abortions per 1,000 live births, according to the CDC or Centers for Disease Control. There are performed 1.437 million abortions per year, which breaks down to 1,708 plus abortions per day, or about 71 or so abortions per hour. And then if you take it all the way down, there is one abortion performed every one minute and 19 seconds. Those should be some scary statistics for people to really wrap their head around. Really scary. Now, what I want to do is share with you a little about Planned Parenthood and, and their numbers. In their latest uh, publication of, of numbers for, for 2018 to 2019, these are their service numbers. According to their own report, they performed a total of 345,672 abortions in 2018 to 2019. The total number of abortions per week was 6,301 abortions. Now, they did do some adoption referrals, so let's give them a little bit of credit here. But, the total adoption referrals for the entire year was 1,880. The ratio of adoption referrals to abortions is one out of every 174 abortions that was performed. So only one was referred out for adoption out of 174 abortions. Now let's take a look at their income for the same fiscal year. Planned Parenthood non-government clinic income, 
369.6 million dollars now there was donations that were given to Planned Parenthood by other people in the government and that revenue totaled 591.3 million dollars Planned Planned Parenthood government grants and reimbursements totaled 616.8 million so their total profit was 110.5 million and their total income for that one year was 1.63 billion dollars everyone that was billion with a b 1.63 billion as you can see hopefully Planned Parenthood is making a lot of money and despite what their name may imply one can clearly see that the main plan they have for pregnant women is abortion the termination of their own flesh and blood the killing of their sons and daughters so now that we have talked about Margaret Sanger and her brainchild Planned Parenthood I'd like to hop over to the other side of the topic next up I'd like to introduce you to someone that has done a great deal for the pro-life movement I'd like to introduce you to Miss Abby Johnson. So you see, I want to share with you her story and what she has to say about abortion and Planned Parenthood. And believe me, you will want to stay tuned for this because Abby knows all about Planned Parenthood, since she was, at one time, the youngest clinic director they ever had. We have all seen it before. Maybe it's even happened to you. You tweet out something that's on your mind and... That's right. The Twitter overlords have placed you in Twitter jail. So much for free speech, right? Well, wrong. There is an alternative and a better platform. I invite you to take a look at Parler.com. Parler was founded in 2018 and is based in Henderson, Nevada. Good old American company. After being exhausted with a lack of transparency in big tech, ideological suppression, and privacy abuse, the co-founders decided to create an alternative solution. Parler provides a commenting and social news platform for digital publishers, influencers, bloggers, writers, politicians, and social users to share news, opinions, and content in real time. Additionally, they provide enterprise tools to enhance online blogs, media, and websites with direct social integrations and monetization capabilities. Parler's goal is to offer the world a platform that protects users' rights, supports publishers, and builds communities. They are not regulators, they are not governors, they simply are a community. I cannot recommend Parler high enough as the best free speech social media platform out there for everyone. It's time to take back control from Twitter and speak your mind. You can find and download the app in either the Apple App Store or on Google Play or on any major web browser, go to parler.com. Once you've downloaded it to your phone, be sure to set up your account. And lastly, make sure you find me by searching for at Red Pill Patriot Show. All right, everyone, welcome back. And like I said before the break, I want to introduce you to Miss Abby Johnson and tell you a little bit about her story. So uh, let's start with Abby and when she was born. She was born a few years after Margaret Sanger on July 10th, 1980. And according to sources online, she is an American anti-abortion activist who previously worked for Planned Parenthood. She began volunteering for the local Planned Parenthood office in Bryan, Texas in 2001, and at the time identified as being, quote, extremely pro-choice, end quote, despite the fact that she was raised in a conservative family that opposed abortion. 
She quickly moved up the ranks to become the clinic director of the Bryan, Texas facility, and she was recognized as Planned Parenthood's Employee of the Year in 2008. However, she resigned in October of 2009. And she has said that the reason for her resignation occurred when on September 26, 2009, she was asked to assist with an ultrasound-guided abortion. She watched in horror as a 13-week-old baby fought for and ultimately lost its life at the hand of an abortionist. Her memoir, Unplanned, was made into a movie in 2019 by the same name. Currently, Miss Johnson is an author a public speaker and president and founder of the organization, and then there were none. Let's take a listen to an interview that Abby did in 2015 with the American Center for Law and Justice, talking a little bit about her story. My name is Abby Johnson. I'm a former Planned Parenthood clinic director. The abortion procedure was a blind procedure. So an ultrasound was used, but we only used the ultrasound to determine how far along the woman was in her pregnancy. Then the ultrasound was rolled away and the doctor would come in and he had a suction tube and he would just blindly poke around inside the woman's uterus until he thought he had enough blood and tissue in a glass jar. So when this doctor came in and, and told me, you know, surprisingly, uh, it is safer if a a doctor can see what he's doing while he's performing surgery. I just thought, well, gosh, if that's safer for a woman, then why aren't we doing that at Planned Parenthood? I mean, aren't we about keeping women safe? That's what we say. So I, I went and asked my, my supervisor about it. She said, using an ultrasound during an abortion takes about an extra three to five minutes of time. And our goal inside of Planned Parenthood was to have a woman on the table, off the table, abortion completed in five minutes. So adding an extra three to five minutes of time was just not gonna be something that, that we could do. But the doctor told me that if time presented itself, uh, that he would show me what an, an ultrasound guided abortion looked like. My job was to hold the ultrasound probe on the woman's abdomen so that the doctor would be able to, in his words, visualize his target. The doctor began the procedure and he inserted the suction tube. The suction wasn't yet turned on. And when he touched the side of this baby, the baby jumped. And uh, he began moving and, and flailing his arms and legs as if he was trying to move away. The machine was turned on and I just, I stood there in disbelief, I mean, you know, I watched this child become dismembered in his mother's womb, and I remember the, the very last thing that I saw, this perfectly formed little backbone, you know, probably about this big, um, just swirling around in his mother's womb. And then I finally saw it be suctioned away. And then, the screen was black, and I knew the abortion had been completed. I had witnessed a death. I had uh, witnessed a, a human response, this fight or flight response, which is in all of us. And I knew then that, that I had been lied to by Planned Parenthood, 
And I knew because I had so eagerly believed their lies, I had lied to thousands of women who would come into my facility. And I knew that had to change, and I knew part of that change would be me leaving Planned Parenthood. Wow. My gosh. Just listening to her, her description, and her words were extremely impactful for me, and I'm willing to bet they were for you as well. You know, when she talked about the baby's response to being probed by the suction cannula and how it literally pulled away as if fighting for its own life, I'll admit I teared up a little. Even at 13 weeks, 13 weeks of age, our human innate fight or flight mechanism is intact and doing its job it's it's protecting us it's it's striving to keep us alive even at that young age you know one of the things i admire most about abby is her willingness to be honest and tell the truth no matter what this next clip is is her talking about something very personal because you see not only was abby pro choice but she actually had an abortion of her very own. And here she's going to talk to you about her experience being the patient of an abortion. When I had my abortion, I I was so scared. I think the thing I was most afraid of was telling my parents. And I wish somebody would have come alongside of me and said, your parents will want to know about this. And what do you think your parents will be most disappointed about? Do you think that your parents would be more disappointed that you have gotten pregnant? Or do you think they would be more disappointed that you have taken the life of their grandchild? I wish that somebody would have reasoned with me about my fear and helped me see that that fear was really irrational. Um, But I was so closed in about what I was experiencing because I was so scared that I, I didn't allow anyone to reason with me. And I think that's where a lot of women are, especially young women. That's where a lot of them are when they find out that they're in a crisis situation. And so they run to places like Planned Parenthood. Part of my healing has absolutely been my own abortion experience, the abortions that I have helped participate in, the abortions that I helped coerce women into. I mean, it has just been this, you know, um, kind of huge ball of wax that I have really had to sort through. you know, I don't, I don't know how I would have been able to do it without God's grace. And, you know, it's something that, like I said, I'm, I'm still sorting through. I'm still in the process of healing. Um, it, is not, it is not a simple process. Um, but, it, you know, every, every part of the healing, it just, it feels better and better, you know. And... Um, you know, somebody told me one time, you know, you're just kind of in this bubble of grace. And that is, that is so true. And that's how I feel every day. 
You know, it's just one day at a time, one step at a time. And, um, you know, God confirms to me that I am just, you know, walking in His path and, and just walking in His grace all the time, every day. That is pretty powerful. You know, listening to her share that experience and uh, the one takeaway I get from that clip in particular is that there is indeed hope. There's hope for everyone who has either had an abortion or works in the abortion industry. There's hope and there is light at the end of the tunnel. And and if you are one of those people that that had an abortion or 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 are carrying some kind of of baggage because of that, you know, don't let it weigh you down. We're all human and we all do things that maybe we regret. But understand that, you know, just like Abby said, you know, with God's love and, and God's grace, you can come out the other end of a better person. And and for those that work in the abortion industry, I know Abby's done a lot to help um, people, women in particular, because it seems like there's a lot of women that work at Planned Parenthood, to break away from the organization and to find new career paths and new things to do. So again, if you if you are feeling that you're trapped uh, in that industry, you're not. There is a way out, and, and you can go to Abby's website and, and find resources on how you can escape um, and still have a life uh, post-Planned Parenthood. So the next thing that I want to share with you, again, we're talking all about Abby and, and things that she has said. I, w- I want to share with you a little bit more in depth about what happened and what she saw on September 26, 2009. She talked about it a little bit in an earlier clip, but, but this part in particular is what convinced her that she needed to leave Planned Parenthood and become an activist uh, and an advocate, if you will, for the unborn. The day that I witnessed the ultrasound-guided abortion, I didn't know that it was going to be a significant day. It seemed like a pretty normal abortion day for us. We had a visiting abortionist come in that day. We were trying him out to see if we wanted to put him on our permanent uh, rotation of physicians. He owns a private practice, him and his wife work at that private practice and he had told me a couple weeks before when I was talking to him that he did a different type of abortion procedure and it was a type where he used ultrasound guidance and it was something I had never seen before. Um, I was actually pretty interested in what he was talking about because he had told me that it was the safest type of abortion procedure for the woman because you're actually able to visualize what is happening in the uterus. My job during the procedure was actually to hold the ultrasound probe on the woman's belly during the procedure and that way he would be able to see the ultrasound screen and to actually see the baby on the screen during the abortion. And I remember putting the probe on her belly and looking up at the screen and saw a perfectly formed uh, side profile from head to foot um, of a baby on the screen. They did uh, a crown rump measurement and found that the baby was 13 weeks. Um, I remember one of the first thoughts I had was remembering that that picture on the ultrasound looked just like 
the picture that we had of my daughter Grace when I was about 12 weeks pregnant with her and thinking that it looked very similar and I, I kind of got a pit in my stomach and I remember thinking, you know, I don't think this is going to be the great learning experience that I was hoping for. He then began the procedure and uh, I saw the cannula, which is uh, the actual straw-like instrument uh, that's hooked up to the suction. I saw that um, go into the woman's uh, uterus, which I thought was interesting. I'd never seen that before. And uh, the cannula actually began to uh, probe the side of the baby and nothing was happening. Women ask a lot of questions when they come in to have an abortion. And one of the questions that they ask probably most often is, will my baby feel this? And the scripted answer that Planned Parenthood gives to that question is, no, the fetus does not have any sensory development until 28 weeks. And so that was the scripted answer that I had given to hundreds and hundreds of women um, over and over again. And so that was the answer that I was replaying in my head over and over again as I was watching this. And as I was thinking about that answer, all of a sudden I, I saw the baby kind of jump. And uh, it, was if, it was as if the baby was moving away from the cannula. It didn't like what it was feeling on its side and it wanted to, to get away from it. And um, I, I couldn't believe what I was watching because I realized that all of that that I had been told was a lie and I couldn't help but think what else was a lie. You know, what else was I believing that, that wasn't true? And I just, I watched in horror. You know, I, I didn't, it was like I didn't want to look at it, but I couldn't stop looking at it. And the, the woman on the table was, was very, you know, she was upset. She was in pain. I wanted to comfort her, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop looking at what was happening on the screen. And uh, the physician asked for the technician to turn on the suction machine, and um, she did. And, you know, with every twist of that cannula, I could see, you know, the baby's body twisting and, and turning. And I just, I, you know, I couldn't believe what I was watching. And, and then within just a few moments, the screen was black and it was over. And I just thought, gosh, you know, that's it. I mean, that, that's choice. That's what I've been fighting for for eight years, you know. And I, I couldn't help but think of, of all of those women that I had lied to, not intentionally. I mean, I didn't mean to lie to them when they asked me, will my baby feel this? But I, I just thought, what if they had known the truth? You know, what if I had known the truth? I mean, if those women had known the truth, would it have made a difference? Because it mattered to them. You know, they asked for a reason, and I had just flat out lied to them. And I, I just couldn't, couldn't help but think, what if they had known the truth? What if so many other people in our society actually knew the truth about abortion and what choice is actually doing to these children in the womb? It just, it, it just is so, so powerful when you get away from the talking points and the, the arguing and the shouting and just listen to someone who worked at Planned Parenthood day after day after day 
thought she was doing something to help innocent women. But when she really saw what was happening with her own eyes, she had a red-pilled moment, if you, if you will. She could no longer deny the truth, and she understood that all these years, Planned Parenthood has been lying to her, and I would tell you that Planned Parenthood is lying to all of us with the things that they're saying. If you would really like to know more about Abby Johnson and her story and the work that she's doing, because she is doing phenomenal work, I would encourage you to go to her website at www.abbyjohnson.org. Again, that's www.abbyjohnson.org for information and all kinds of links that you can uh, use for yourself and your own education, your own research, and you can pass on to others that may be needing a little assistance. Now, if you have not had the opportunity yet to have seen the movie Unplanned, uh, which is, again, based upon her memoirs, if you didn't catch it when it was in the theater in 2019, uh, I can't encourage you enough to watch it. Um, It's available. Uh, You can watch it online. I know Amazon, I think, has it. You can rent it for $4.99, or you can even buy a digital copy for $14.99. And this movie is not pro-life preachy. It is a, it's, it's literally just her life. And if you have a friend or a family member who is, who is pro-choice, and again, I'm not vilifying people that are pro-choice. I think that probably most of them just aren't educated and they think they're, they think they're on the right side because they, they've been misled. They've believed the, the propaganda that's been put out by the left and by Planned Parenthood. But if you have someone in your life who is pro-abortion or pro-life, please get a copy of this movie and sit down and watch it with them. It will change everyone's perspective on abortion in a non-preachy way because it just dispels the myths and the lies and lays it out and Again, I would just challenge everyone within the sound of my voice to please, please, if nothing else, take that challenge. Get a copy and watch it. Watch it with someone who is on the pro-choice side and, and see if we can't change people's ideas and help them understand that abortion is not anything but simply the killing of innocent children. Now... I want to kind of take one step further on this before we end this section of the show. Most of the abortions that, that Abby talked about were, were first trimester, and they did use a suction cannula. But in the news over the past few months, we've seen more and more uh, aggressive uh, adoption of, of, of abortion laws in certain states that are allowing abortion all the way up to the date of birth, and even in some states, as the baby's coming down the birth control, birth birth canal, sorry, not the birth control, the birth canal, they're allowed to abort and kill this child. So what I wanted to do is I, I wanted to share with you a clip. Now, this clip, I will warn you, 
it's one that may be really hard for some people to listen to, as it is the testimony of an ex-abortion doctor who is testifying before Congress about the very real details of a second-term abortion. So this isn't even third term. This is a second-term abortion. Now, the clip's about six minutes in length, and you know I want you to hear it. I do. If you can, please listen to this part of the show, because I feel that if, if we bury our heads in the sand and only listen to the talking points on abortion from the left and the right, you know, it doesn't do any, any good for any of us, and it definitely doesn't do anything to benefit the, the unborn. It's not justice for them. Every one of us needs to face the reality of what is being done in drastic numbers right here in America, in our cities, and in our neighborhoods. This investigation of Planned Parenthood is based on false premises, one after another after another. It's time to stop wasting time, get on with meaningful work, and stop picking on women and trying to take their choice away. I yield back the balance of my time. The time of the gentleman has expired. We welcome our distinguished witnesses today. Do you and each of you swear that the testimony that you are about to give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And I'll now begin by introducing today's witnesses. The first witness is Dr. Anthony Levitino. Dr. Levitino is a board-certified obstetrician gynecologist. Over the course of his career, Dr. Levitino has practiced obstetrics and gynecology in both private and university settings, including as an associate professor of OBGYN at the Albany Medical College. And Dr. Levitino, we'll begin with you. Welcome. Thank you, Chairman and members of the committee. Um, I only have five minutes, so I'm going to get right to it. Second trimester d &E abortions performed between roughly 14 and 24 weeks of gestation. Your patient today is 17 years old. She's 22 weeks pregnant. Her baby is the length of your hand plus a couple of inches. And she's been feeling her baby kick for the last several weeks. But she's asleep on an operating room table. You walk into that operating room scrubbed and gowned and after removing laminaria, you introduce a suction catheter into the uterus. This is a 14 French suction catheter. If she were 12 weeks pregnant or less, basically the width of your hand or smaller, you could basically do the entire procedure with this. But babies this big don't fit through catheters this size. After suctioning the amniotic fluid out from around the baby, you introduce an instrument called a sofa clamp. It's about 13 inches long. It's made of stainless steel. The business end of this clamp is about two and a half inches long and a half inch wide. There are rows of sharp teeth. This is a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. A d &E procedure is a blind abortion, so picture yourself introducing this and grabbing anything you can blindly and pull, and I do mean hard, and out pops a leg about that big, which you put down on the table next to you. Reach in again, pull again, pull out an arm about the same length, which you put down on the table next to you, and use this instrument again and again to tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart and lungs. Head on the baby that size is about the size of a large plum, can't see it, but you pretty good idea you've got it if you've got your instrument around something and your fingers are spread about as far as they go. You know you did it right if you crush down on the instrument and white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. Then you could pull out skull pieces. And you have a day like I had a lot of times, sometimes a little face comes back and stares back at you. Congratulations, you just successfully performed a second trimester DNA abortion. You just affirmed her right to choose. One more question, Dr. Levitino. Why did you end your practice of doing abortions? I did over 1,200 abortions over a four-year period in private practice, not counting the ones that I did during my training. Um, 
I met my wife at, um, during my first year of training at Albany Medical Center. We got married about a year later and found that we had an infertility problem. After years of failed infertility treatment and several years trying to adopt a child, we were blessed with a, adopting a, a little girl that we named Heather in August of 1978. Um, as sometimes happens in those situations, my wife got pregnant the very next month and we had two children ten months apart. Um, Two months short of my daughter Heather's sixth birthday, she was killed in an auto accident and literally died in her arms in the back of an ambulance. Anyone who has children might think they have some idea of what that feels like, but unless you've been through it yourself, you have no idea whatsoever. Um, I know people find it hard to believe, but uh, what do you do after disaster? You bury your child and then you go back to your life. And I don't remember exactly how long it was after my daughter died that I showed up at Albany Medical Center OR number 9 to perform my first second trimester d &E abortion. I wasn't thinking of it as anything special. This was routine to me. Um, but I reached in, literally pulled out an arm or leg, and got sick. You know, earlier on I described stacking up body parts on the side of the table. It's not to, you know, gross people out, to use a simple term. When you do an, an abortion, you need to keep inventory. You have to make sure you get two arms and two legs and all the pieces. If you don't, your patient's going to come back infected, bleeding, or dead. Um, so I soldiered on and finished that abortion. And I know it sounds, as I said, hard for people to believe, but I'm, I'm telling you straight up my experience. You know, after over 1,200 abortions, first and second trimester up to 24 weeks and all the rest of it, and being very dedicated to it, for the first time in my life, I really looked. I really looked at that pile of body parts on the side of the table and I didn't see her wonderful right to choose and I didn't see all the money I just made. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And I stopped doing late-term abortions after that and several months later stopped doing all abortions. Thank you. hard to listen to but yet so necessary and I want each of you to take a moment and reflect on what that doctor shared with us and if you need to pause the podcast or rewind it and go back and listen to it again and then take a moment to really reflect on how he explained the details of what happens in a second trimester abortion now, like I mentioned earlier, there's a real fight across the country in many states about abortion rights. Some states are enacting more strict um, laws with regards to abortion. Others are opening the floodgates to let anyone have an abortion at whatever term of the pregnancy they want. However, as I was listening to that last clip, I remembered that uh, I had found uh, another bit of audio that I want to play for you now, and it is actually Abby Johnson uh, testifying uh, before a, uh, a government panel of some kind. I don't know if this is on a, looks like it's on a much more local level, maybe the state or something like that. But, but you know, I talked about how she's a public speaker and an advocate. And what I want to do is I want to play this for you because she really goes into detail 
with what happens after the abortion. This clip starts off with two women speaking that uh, are uh, representatives of the, uh, I believe, the ACLU. Um, I think that's what they said. And they are pro-choice, pro-abortion, and they, they have a few things to say before the time is turned over to, to Abby. And uh, I will uh, go ahead and play this for you now so you can hear exactly what, uh, what Abby has to say happens once the abortion is complete. I'm the advocacy director for the ACLU of Kentucky, and I'm here to testify against Senate Bill 9. This law is patently unconstitutional. The second it is signed, the ACLU of Kentucky will file a lawsuit. I urge you to vote no on Senate Bill 9. My name is Nicole Stipp. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a tax-paying constituent. I create jobs, and I issue a lot of 1099s and I have had an abortion. It didn't have a heartbeat, it didn't have a face, it didn't have feelings, it was a clump of cells and tissue. I can also promise you that had I been forced to see this pregnancy through, I would have done what women have done for all the decades. People like you have been trying to stop abortions. I would have gone to any length, medically overseen or not, to end my pregnancy. I am just like the other one in four women that have had abortions. We do it because we cannot provide a life for children while we work for financial stability. We do it because we don't want to bear children and haven't yet had our IUDs or surgeries to prevent it. We do it because we're 18, have been sexually assaulted and don't want to have a baby. Thank you for your comments and we will now yield to the sponsor of the bill. Good morning, committee. I'm Senator Kathlin, the sponsor of Senate Bill 9, the fetal heartbeat bill. And the first speaker is Abby Johnson. And Abby, if you can introduce yourself for the record. Sure, my name is Abby Johnson. I worked at Planned Parenthood for eight years. I was an abortion clinic director. And I listened to the testimony from the opposition of this bill, and I want to sort of go through some of that um, interesting testimony that we heard and many non-factual points that were made in that testimony. One thing that I kept hearing was that, uh, you know, there's no exceptions in this bill for any, any sort of rape or incest. Let me be clear. Even if they were, the ACLU wouldn't support it. Even if there were, Planned Parenthood wouldn't support this bill. So the fact that they're even bringing that up is really intellectually dishonest. Uh, Abortion can never on its face be safe because in order for an abortion to be deemed successful, an individual and unique human being with a beating heart must die. That can never be safe for that individual human life. I want to uh, talk specifically about what a first trimester abortion is and what it looks like from a person who ran a Planned Parenthood abortion facility and was there for eight years. First trimester abortions are by and large the most common abortion procedure we see in the United States. A transvaginal ultrasound is standard procedure inside of every National Abortion Federation clinic, which includes every Planned Parenthood clinic. That transvaginal ultrasound is done for primarily one reason, to determine how far along the woman is in her pregnancy so that we knew how much to charge her for the abortion. After the ultrasound is performed, the ultrasound machine is rolled away. The doctor comes in, who by the way, has no conversation 
happen with the woman before the abortion. The fact that many people say abortion should be a decision made between a woman and her doctor is laughable. There is never a time where the abortion doctor goes in, sits down with the woman, and goes over risk alternatives and benefits to abortion. It does not happen. Um, the doctor starts performing the abortion. He's going to insert into the woman's uterus, uh, into the cervix, metal dilation rods, graduated metal dilation rods. He's going to dilate the cervix enough so that he can insert something called a suction cannula. That cannula looks like a straw. It is graduated. It gets bigger depending on how big the baby is in the womb so that the head will be able to fit through that suction cannula. He's going to insert that suction probe inside of the woman's uterus. Ultrasound guidance is not used. That is not the standard protocol inside of National Abortion Federation or Planned Parenthood clinics. He's going to take that probe and he's going to blindly poke around inside the woman's uterus until he thinks he has enough blood and tissue in a glass jar. That glass jar is going to go into a lab called the POC lab. POC in the medical community stands for products of conception. The products of conception is, of course, the baby. But you can't say baby inside of the abortion clinic. So we said POC or POC, or if the staff was feeling funny, they would say that it stood for parts of children. After all the parts were accounted for, the POC lab technician would dump everything out into a glass baking dish that sat on top of an x-ray light box, and she would reassemble the parts of the baby. Please understand me, I'm talking about first trimester abortion. Yes, there are parts. Yes, they must be reassembled. The baby is fully formed. Every internal organ is formed by 12 weeks gestation. So yes, there are parts, even earlier than 12 weeks. Once all the parts are reassembled, that POC tech will take everything, dump it into a red biohazard Ziploc sort of bag and those bags will go into a freezer in the POC lab that the staff jokingly called the nursery. And once a week, a company, a biohazard medical waste company like Sericycle will come into the facility and they will pick up all the red bags of babies where they are taken to their facility to be incinerated. That's if the abortion facility decides they don't want to just put them in their industrial size garbage disposal and grind them up and put them into the water waste treatment facilities. That is first trimester abortion. We have already heard the testimonies from the opposition calling women who are pregnant, pregnant persons. Because now we live in a time where people say it is not just women who get pregnant. Now apparently men can get pregnant. And that shows you just how detached from science the pro-choice side is on this issue. Fact, only women get pregnant. You got to have lady parts to have a baby. That's science. Science also tells us that from the moment of conception, unique and individual and unrepeatable DNA is formed. That DNA is human. Never in the history of the world has a woman ever delivered a cat or a dog or any other species other than human. That's science. Our history tells us time and time again that it is unjust 
to take the life of an innocent human being. It was unjust to dehumanize an entire segment of people when we were working to abolish slavery. It was unjust to dehumanize an entire group of Jewish people in the Holocaust. But those two examples that I just gave you only exist because our society was willing to turn a blind eye, look a human person in the face and say, that is not a human being. That is not scientific. Now we are living in such depravity that there are people, like the people that oppose this bill, that are willing to say, I know it's a human being, I know it has a heartbeat, I know there is life there, and I know it is innocent, and I'm willing to kill it. We have sunk to a new low in our society. And it is time for us to rectify what we have done. So if you are a person here who has had an abortion, I encourage you to seek healing because abortion is not normal. Taking the life of an innocent human being that is your own flesh and blood and your own DNA, it's not normal. And there are healing resources available. And to the people in here who work in the abortion industry, I encourage you to seek healing from a ministry called, and then there were none. We can get you out of the industry and we can get you into a line of work that you can actually be proud of. And to the ACLU, I can say affirmatively, we look forward to your lawsuit. Senator Higdon? Aye. Senator Humphreys? Aye. Senator Parrott? The bill has passed. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Any other comment? If not, this meeting stands adjourned. As you can, as you can see, the bill did pass. And uh, when we come back, I will share with you some, share with you some thoughts on how to calmly and rationally discuss various objections that we encounter from those who favor abortion as a means of birth control. Abby Johnson is in the other room. Here. Our first order of business is to present Planned Parenthood's Employee of the Year Award. Abby Johnson. This is Abby. She's our newest volunteer escort. Abby, this is Cheryl Alessandro. I'd be the youngest director in Planned Parenthood history. You'll actually be in charge of the abortions at your clinic. I have a chance to make a real difference. No matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're still going to be a baby killer. The only thing that's changed is you, Abby. Can you even hear yourself talk right now about these procedures? These are little babies. I'm not going to apologize for doing a job that helps women in crisis. There's still a part of me that isn't sure. I know. But the one thing that all experts agree on is that at this stage, the fetus can't feel anything. Sorry to bother you, but they need an extra person in the back room. Are you free? I saw it. It was like it was twisting and fighting 
Lauren's life. We commend the souls of these hundreds of children. And Lord, we pray to end abortion. I really appreciate what you've done for us. I'll not forget it. 22,000 abortions. How do I even comprehend that? Rough day at the office. You could say that. You're making a mess. It's your dad and me. You are our baby from the moment of conception. We are paying you to be a perfect instrument of corporate policy. We are an abortion provider. I can't be a part of this anymore. Everything that they told us is a lie. Don't underestimate the repercussions of this. You gotta be careful. Rhonda, please don't do this! Rhonda! Let me tell you what's gonna happen if you walk through that door. Congratulations. You've made an enemy of one of the most powerful organizations on the planet. All right. What you just heard was the trailer for the movie Unplanned. So, again, I've already made the plea and encouraged you to get your hands on a copy of the film. Um, But please, again, go check out the movie. It will change your life, I promise. So we're going to switch gears here and move away from what we've been talking about so far and really get into addressing some of the the key talking points from those of the pro-choice movement and those that are pro-abortion. And I hope at this point, with what you've listened to so far, that if you're someone who is pro-choice, that you have some factual information that you can think about and really ponder. And if anyone listening has had their own red pill moment, if you will, uh, today with listening to this about abortion, I'd love to hear from you. And you can send your thoughts and comments to redpillpatriot.fan at fastmail.com. Again, that's redpillpatriot.fan at fastmail.com. You can find ways to get in contact with me at our website, which is www.redpillpatriot.net. And if you are already a pro-life advocate, I hope that your belief and passion have been bolstered and you will continue to be a part of the movement to save those without a voice and protect the most innocent among us. Now, what I want to do is share with you a few clips that address, like I said, many of the talking points we hear from those who are pro-choice um, and pro-abortion uh, about what they say um, why they why they feel the way they do? You know these clips aren't meant to enrage us or result in shouting matches because nothing is ever gained when we become enraged or or shout or try and you know talk down to someone. But if you find yourself in a calm and reasonable discussion with someone who is pro-choice, these points may come in handy. Now all these clips and many more videos can be found on the Red Pill Patriot Show's YouTube channel under the episode twelve abortion playlist. So there's a playlist called episode 12. I think it's entitled abortion. All the clips are there and and some that didn't even make it into the show because they were just too long. So I would encourage you to go there and check out that playlist. Now, all these clips I'm going to share with you now, um, they're great. And I found them on a YouTube channel called What Would You Say? I encourage you to definitely check them out because they have a lot of great videos, not just about these topics I'm going to share with you now, but on other topics that are, you know, hot button issues today, currently, as well as very relevant for personal growth. 
Now, what we're going to do is I'm going to go through six clips that I found that will help you to answer what I consider to be the biggest talking points for those who are pro-abortion and pro-choice. And here's what they are. First, human life doesn't begin at conception. It's just a clump of cells. And we heard that in the last clip uh, of the testimony of the ACLU. I'm sorry. Yeah, the ACLU uh, person before the Kentucky uh, legislature. So we've already heard that one. Okay. Next, we're going to hear uh, a clip about an embryo is not a person. Next, after that, if the child is going to suffer, it should be aborted. Next, we'll hear uh, about the issue that they say an unborn child does not have the right to their mother's body. Also, we're going to talk about how they say abortion should be legal for rape and incest victims. And lastly, we'll talk about how abortion is health care for women. Okay, so those are the six we're going to talk about and, and what we're going to get some, some talking points for you to, to use. Okay, so let's start with the first one. Human life doesn't begin at conception. It's just a clump of cells. You're in a conversation about abortion and someone says, Human life doesn't begin at conception. It's just a clump of cells. What would you say? It's easy to say life doesn't begin at conception because an embryo doesn't look like what we think people should look like. But we know human life begins at some point. Here are a few things to remember while you think about when that is. First, life doesn't begin at birth. It isn't logical to say life begins at birth because that would suggest that the baby inside the womb one day prior to birth wasn't alive. It's not reasonable to say an individual who is alive at birth is not alive one day prior to birth. The only difference is where they are. So we know life does not begin at birth. Second, life doesn't begin at viability. Many argue that human life begins once a baby can survive on her own outside the womb. But there are problems with this argument too. After all, viability changes based on technology. Today, babies can be born at 24 weeks and survive. But 200 years ago, that wasn't possible. Viability is also determined based on where you are born. Wealthy nations make things possible for babies that wouldn't be possible in a poorer country. Does that mean a 24-week baby in the United States is more alive than a 24-week baby in the jungles of the Congo? Of course not. So life must be determined by something other than viability. Third, life does not begin with a heartbeat. We know that living things only come from other living things. It wouldn't be possible then for the embryo to be non-living for the first few weeks and suddenly spring into life. So the embryo has to be alive prior to the heartbeat. Does this mean that we can be alive without a heartbeat? Yes. That's actually what makes the newly conceived embryo more functionally impressive than a born person. The embryo has an ability to live, grow, and move through the stages of human development without the feature you and I need to continue our growth and development. If life doesn't begin at birth, viability, or heartbeat, when does it begin? Life begins at conception, fertilization. At fertilization, a living mother and father give life to a whole living organism, genetically distinct from his or her mother and father. No, the embryo doesn't look like everyone else, 
But aren't we past the idea that someone has to look a certain way before they are considered human? Think of it like a Polaroid picture. Initially, all you will see are black smudge marks. The moment the photo is taken, however, the image is captured. It just needs time to develop. The same is true for you and me. The moment of sperm egg fusion, we in our uniqueness from our parents began to exist. We just needed time to develop. Let's review. Life doesn't begin at birth because that suggests you aren't alive the day before birth. Life doesn't begin at viability because viability depends on where you were born and when. Life doesn't begin at the heartbeat either because that requires you to believe the heartbeat emerged from someone that isn't alive. So we're left with one option. Life begins at conception, at fertilization. It's what science tells us and logic requires us to acknowledge. For What Would You Say? I'm Stephanie Gray. All right. So that gave us some great points that validate that life does begin at conception. Um, that's, I mean, what a great statement, you know, that uh, we can have scientific understanding that life does begin at conception. But, but some people will say, well, an embryo is not a person. And if that's something that that uh, you've been asked, you know, what did you say? And if you haven't been asked that, do you have any idea what you would say personally? Well, thankfully, we have another clip that will answer that for you and give you some great talking points. You're in a conversation about abortion, and someone says that an embryo isn't a person, it's just a collection of cells. So there's nothing wrong with abortion at that stage. What would you say? Before we can decide whether an embryo is a person, we have to ask what makes anyone a person. Here are a few things to remember. Our personhood does not depend on our abilities. Some are hesitant to recognize embryos as persons because they don't function in the same way that fully developed people often do. For example, embryos can't think or talk, but neither can someone under anesthetic someone in a coma, or someone who is asleep think or talk. Newborns can't think or talk the way adults can. Are they still people? Even adults vary in their ability to think and to talk. What we can do does not make us who we are. Our personhood does not depend on our age. The argument that embryos aren't fully persons assumes that our age determines our personhood. But does that make sense? If we have to be old enough to do certain things or look a certain way before we are persons, do we lose our personhood once we are too old to do things? I certainly hope not. In times past, some humans with lighter skin denied the personhood of those with darker skin. Everyone rightly recognizes how wrong that is. But if some humans shouldn't dismiss the personhood of others because of the color of their skin, Neither should humans who are older have a right to deny personhood to those who are younger. If it's not age or ability that makes us a person, what does? Our personhood comes from our nature. To determine what something is, it is helpful to consider its nature, not just its current abilities. It is the nature of birds to fly. 
If they are too young or injured to do what most birds do, that does not make them less of a bird. While neither an embryo, an infant, or a severely disabled person may be able to think or talk the way we can, the capacity to do so is part of their nature, even if that capacity is undeveloped or impaired. This is why we protect the offspring of endangered animals in the same way we protect their parents. As humans, our shared nature, regardless of our abilities, appearance, or age, gives us equal value. Bad things happen when we deny others' personhood based on their ability or appearance. Once we abandon the idea that humans have equal value based on their nature, we are left to the whims of a group in power. There was a time when women weren't considered persons. There was a time when African Americans weren't considered persons. There was a time when Jews weren't considered persons. We rightly condemn mistreatment based on sex, race, or ethnicity because we know that these do not determine our humanity. So it is with embryos. They may not have all the same abilities we do, but if they could speak, they would tell us, I'm just like you, just a little younger. Let's review. Our personhood does not depend on our abilities, nor does it depend on our age. Our personhood and our equal value is rooted in our shared nature as humans, regardless of what we can do. And if we decide people's value is based on what they look like or what they're capable of, that puts us in some pretty bad company. For What Would You Say? I'm Stephanie Gray. All right, so we have covered the first two arguments that we face commonly from pro-choice uh, individuals. And we know that life does begin at conception, like I stated before, and that an embryo is indeed a person. Next up, let's learn a little bit about the talking point that you've probably heard, uh, and that is that if a child is going to suffer, it's better to abort it. Now, this certainly can be a tough one for many people. I mean, after all, no one of sound mind wants anyone to suffer, especially a child. But never fear. Here is what you need to know. You're having a conversation about abortion, and someone says it isn't right to bring a child into the world who suffers from a terrible disease, will have a poor quality of life, or be a burden on others. What would you say? In 2017, CBS reported that Down syndrome was disappearing from Iceland. Why is that? Well, almost 100% of the time, where women learn their baby has Down syndrome, they opt for abortion. Other times we hear that if a child will be disadvantaged or suffer, abortion may be best. Here are three things to remember in this conversation. First, if we wouldn't kill an adult with a condition, we shouldn't kill the baby either. Since Down syndrome is such a common excuse for abortion, ask yourself this. Should a civil society kill a teenager working in a local grocery store because he has Down syndrome? Obviously not. But what's the difference between a teenager and a preborn child? Their age. 
Whether it is a child with Down syndrome, a lack of limbs, or any other condition, since the human right to life is grounded in being human, not in our age, we shouldn't kill a baby because of their physical circumstances any more than we should kill a grown person in similar circumstances. Second, just society's care for the most vulnerable. Think about how much our world speaks out against bullying. There are so many campaigns at schools to remind people that those who are stronger should not pick on those who are weaker. To remind people that those with certain appearances or abilities should not pick on others with different appearances or abilities. But somehow in a conversation about abortion, we abandon those principles and replace it with, they'll be better off dead. That's not just, and it's not compassionate. Third, killing people is not the right way to stop suffering. The fact is, life is hard. Yes, some people have a more difficult journey than others, but regardless of our physical or mental condition, each one of us is forced to deal with challenges. However, a physical challenge in no way guarantees a poor quality of life. We all probably know people with physical challenges whose quality of life is much better than other people we know who appear to be physically well. Life itself is a gift, even with its challenges. Allowing ourselves to decide when someone's chances of suffering are so great that they no longer deserve to live is very dangerous territory. What health conditions are serious enough to justify ending someone's life? Who gets to decide? Isn't allowing that decision to be made only prior to birth arbitrary? Once we give ourselves the permission to decide who lives and dies based on our personal opinion of their chance for a good quality of life, we place ourselves in the company of people we probably don't want to be in. Protecting the vulnerable and caring for those who suffer is a much better option for everyone. Let's review. If we are considering whether abortion is the right solution to potential suffering for a baby, remember, if we wouldn't kill an adult with a particular condition, we shouldn't abort a baby either. Just societies care for the most vulnerable. And finally, killing people is not the right solution to suffering. Service, compassion, and sacrifice is. For What Would You Say? I'm Stephanie Gray. Okay, so moving along with our points here, what about the, the argument that you may have heard, an unborn child does not have a right to their mother's body. You hear it all the time in the talking points of the left and those that, again, are pro-choice and pro-abortion when they chant things like, my body, my choice. Before I get to the clip, I want to share with you my opinion on this because the statement of my body, my choice doesn't have any substance, in my opinion, because in the vast majority of pregnancies, and this is not everyone, but the vast majority, the woman already made her choice. She chose to have sex. And before anyone says, well, that what about rape and incest? She didn't have a choice there. You're right. And while that is true in those two instances, and I will tell you that the number of pregnancies resulting from these horrific, heinous, evil crimes, they're so small compared to the number of abortions being performed simply because the woman 
honestly, I mean, let's face the fact, she isn't happy with the consequence of her choice to have sex. And that's the problem I have with this argument. Everyone has a choice, not just with what they do with their bodies, everything in life. We all have choices, but what we don't have control over is the consequence of those choices. If someone doesn't want to get pregnant, don't have sex. It's the easiest solution. People will scoff at it, but it's the one surefire way to avoid being pregnant. But let's listen to this clip that talks about this issue in particular. You're talking to someone about abortion, and they say that abortion must be allowed because you can't give one person, a baby, the legal right to another person's body, the mother. What would you say? No one should be compelled by someone else to give blood or donate a kidney. While organ donations may be honorable, we don't require them. Some have concluded that the same principle means that pregnant women have no duty to donate their bodies to their babies once they become pregnant. Is this a good argument? Not necessarily. There are two reasons why. First, the womb exists for the child more than for the mother. My blood and kidneys exist in my body for my body, but a uterus is different. It actually exists for someone else's body. Unlike a kidney, a mother's uterus exists more for her offspring than it does for her. While pregnancy is undoubtedly a sacrifice on behalf of the mother, a baby's use of her mother's womb is completely consistent with the purpose of the uterus, not a violation of it. Which leads to the second point. The more vulnerable a child is, the more we expect from the parents. Imagine a college student goes home for the holidays and asks his parents to feed him three meals a day. If the parents refuse, we might be sad for the college student, but we wouldn't charge the parents with neglect. But what if the child requesting food isn't a college student? What if the child is four years old and the parents refuse to feed him? Is that neglect? Absolutely. What's the difference between the four-year-old and the college student? Dependence. By virtue of the neediness, weakness, and vulnerability of the child, just societies expect more of the parents, not less. Just as newborns, toddlers, and teens need their parents to provide food, clothing, and shelter, the preborn are especially vulnerable. They need their mothers to make similar basic provisions in the only way possible through the shelter and nourishment of her body. Let's review. While some would accuse a preborn child of violating her mother's rights, in reality, a baby uses only that which was created specifically for her. And by allowing it to happen, mothers take care of the most vulnerable among us in a way only a mother can. For What Would You Say? I'm Stephanie Gray. Interestingly, this next bullet point, uh, the clip I'm going to play for it, is something that I just touched on a minute ago. I mentioned it. Um, and we've all been told that a woman shouldn't have to carry to term and deliver a baby that was conceived through the acts of incest and rape. Now, like I mentioned a moment ago, these are evil, horrible, heinous crimes, and my heart goes out to any woman who is a victim of either one. I adamantly decry 
those that would commit these crimes and feel these these people, these criminals, because that's what they are, should be punished to the full extent of the law. However, as we'll see, killing a child conceived in these situations is not the answer. You're in a conversation about abortion and someone says, abortion should be legal because a woman should never be forced to carry the child of her rapist. What would you say? Let's be clear, rape is awful. Rape is evil. Those who commit rape deserve to be punished. Victims of rape deserve compassion and care. However, in conversations about abortion, the possibility of pregnancy by rape or incest is typically used to argue for the legalization of abortion in all cases. Here are three things to remember. First, rape and incest represent a tiny fraction of abortions. Even if abortion could be justified in these rare situations, the vast majority of abortions are in no way justified by these exceptions. Second, abortion in the cases of rape punishes an innocent party. In cases of rape that lead to conception, there are three parties involved, the rapist, the woman, and the child. Which of these three parties is guilty of a crime and deserves to be punished? The woman did nothing wrong. The child did nothing wrong. Only the rapist is guilty. But abortion means that the innocent child is given a punishment that even the guilty rapist won't face. In no other situation do we suggest that a child should be punished for their parents' crimes. In fact, we would never justify killing a born child who was conceived in rape. If we wouldn't punish a child after they are born, why should we punish a child before she is born? Third, our value as humans is not based on how we are conceived. Some people are conceived in love, others are conceived in lust, and some tragically are conceived in violence. Regardless of the circumstances, in each case, an innocent, unrepeatable, and irreplaceable human being comes into existence. By virtue of being human, they have dignity and rights, regardless of how they came to be. Finally, abortion will not change what happened. Abortion may seem like a way to minimize the pain, but it will not change the past, and it cannot make a victim forget what happened. Many things well beyond a pregnancy can act as reminders to victims of sexual assault. Abortion doesn't make the woman any less of a victim, but creates another victim. Rape is wrong. So is abortion. The fact that rape is wrong doesn't make abortion okay. Let's review. When someone says that cases of rape are the reason abortion is okay, remember this. Of all the abortions that occur, very few are for rape and incest. The vast majority of abortions are in no way justified by these exceptions. Abortion in cases of rape or incest punishes the innocent. A child should never be punished for the crimes of their father. Our value as humans does not come from how we are conceived. It comes from who we are as humans created in the image of God. And finally, abortion will not change what happened, but it will create another victim. For What Would You Say? I'm Stephanie Gray. All right. We are... We've gone through all of our bullet points, and we're at the last one here. And, and honestly, 
Um, this one is one of the most recent current arguments that I've heard for abortion from the pro-choice side of this issue, and it, namely, it's that abortion is health care. Now, as a chiropractic physician, I take great offense to this statement, and this next clip will explain exactly why I find this bogus claim um, offensive. You're in a conversation about abortion and someone says, abortion should be legal because abortion is health care. What would you say? Abortion is morally troubling, but labeling it as health care makes it easier to defend as a practice. But that doesn't make the label accurate. The next time you hear someone say that abortion is health care, remember these three things. First, the purpose of health care is to heal or preserve life. Upon becoming licensed, doctors have long pledged to do no harm. Abortion fails this test. It's true that in rare and tragic cases like tubal pregnancies or cancer, doctors may not be able to save the preborn child as they seek to help the mother, but lacking the technology to keep the baby alive is different than trying to kill the child, which is always wrong. Beyond that, we know that these tragic and rare situations involving the life of the mother are not the focus of the abortion debate. Abortion is debated because almost all abortions are done simply because the mother no longer wants to be pregnant. It is in that context that we rightly question whether abortion is healthcare. Which leads to the second point. Abortion is not healthcare because pregnancy is not a disease. Where healthcare seeks to preserve healthy functioning, abortion interferes with it. Not only is abortion the intentional killing of a human life, a pregnancy is evidence that the reproductive system is functioning as intended. Pregnancy demonstrates reproductive health, not disease. Instead of preserving the healthy functioning of the body, abortion interferes with it through artificial and often violent termination of the pregnancy. Abortion is more accurately described as anti-health care, which leads to the third point. Abortion is not health care because it doesn't preserve life, it ends it. There is no reasonable dispute over the fact that abortion ends a human life. Many abortion advocates, including abortion practitioner and clinic founder Bertrand Weiner, have said as much. He says that abortion is killing. No one can argue with that. When the fetus is inside the uterus, it is alive, and when the pregnancy is terminated, it is dead. This admission conflicts with the purpose of healthcare, which exists to preserve life. It's one thing to say that abortion is justified, although even that can be refuted, but under no circumstances is it healthcare. So the next time you hear someone say that abortion is healthcare, remember these three things. First, the purpose of healthcare is to preserve or restore healthy functioning. Abortion doesn't do this. Second, abortion is not healthcare because pregnancy is not a disease. Abortion actually interferes with healthy functioning. Third, abortion is not healthcare because it doesn't preserve life, it ends it. For what would you say? I'm Brooke Boriak. All right, everyone. I hope that those clips. Uh, will be a help to anyone to better understand the factual, science-based talking points regarding mine, my personal views, and millions of other pro-life advocates. Well, every clip I just played for you was honest, intellectually sound, fact-based, and easy to understand, 
I want to now wrap up this part of the show with a clip that shows the utter befuddlement, confusion, and inability, or refusal, if you will, of an abortion doctor to answer some very simple questions. She's being asked by Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky's 4th Congressional District to define the viability of a fetus, among other things. Now, note, as you listen to this, how she appears to be confused. She dances around the topic and tries to avoid giving an answer. At the end of the clip, you will hear Allison Stuckey of Blaze TV give a completely succinct answer and testimony in just a few uh, seconds of the time that was allotted to the abortion doctor. There is a huge difference between these two women, and it speaks volumes to both's credibility. Uh, Dr. McNicholas, what's the medical consensus for age of viability of a fetus? I appreciate the question. So viability is a complicated uh, medical construct. There is no particular gestational age. Um, there are some pregnancies in which a fetus will never be viable. There are a number of different factors that we think about uh, when we're considering if a pregnancy is or isn't viable. So what, is there a legal consensus on the age of viability? Not to my understanding, but I'm a physician, not a lawyer. What's, um, in your 10 years as a doctor, how many abortions have you performed? So I provide a variety of different services, and it, as you- I'm not asking about the other services. How right. many abortions have you performed? So I can't tell you how many hysterectomies I've done, and I can't tell you how many abortions I've done. I've had a long career of taking care of people for a variety of so things. So you, you manage a facility. Can you tell me any, can you tell me, or you're the medical overseer that, can you tell me how many abortions the facility in Missouri performs each week? Um, I can tell you, and I believe it's publicly available, so I can give you a rough estimate of how many abortions we perform per year, uh, what, which is, I think, roughly around 3,000. How do you dispose of 3,000 fetuses every year? So Missouri has a state law that requires that we send all of the remains of pregnancy to pathology. What's the latest term abortion that you've performed, like gestation period in weeks? So my uh, practice includes the provision of abortion up until the point of viability. And again, we already well, had a discussion about yeah, viability not that? being a... So just give me the number in weeks then. I don't know. I, you don't remember the, the number of weeks? That's or, correct. So what I, about size of the unborn baby? Do you know the largest baby that you've aborted? I'm not sure how I would even quantify that. If I use the word fetus, could you, do you know, you have no idea the age or gestation period of the fetuses that you're aborting? So again, as I said, my practice includes abortion care through the point of viability, and as we previously discussed, that I mean, could be Let me put it this way. Point, yes. Is there, is there any point of gestation beyond which you personally would not abort a fetus? You know, it's, medicine is not black and white. I, I recognize in my 10 years of practice uh, informs this, this opinion that pregnancy can be really complicated and given that there are pregnancies for which a fetus may never be viable, I think it's really important that we allow physicians and patients to have every medical resource in, to make decisions that are appropriate for them and their health. In the absence of a law preventing it, would you abort a viable fetus? Um, again, I, every patient is different and I can't make any- I'm just asking about a viable fetus. If the law didn't prevent it, would, it, would you consider it a limitation morally for you to abort a viable fetus? 
So I think you're forgetting that there are a number of reasons that if go into reason, patient's choice. I thought you, uh, at your clinic, does it matter what the reason is for the abortion? At my clinic, I trust that women have a valid reason. Every reason that they have is valid. Okay, so given that you think that every reason is valid, would you abort a viable fetus if there was not a law preventing it? Again, given that the reality for people choosing abortion is that there are many reasons, there isn't a single thing that defines somebody's choice. It is you a reflection a of hard their- time. You seem to have a hard time saying this. This tells me you have a heart, or at least you know that people watching this have a heart, and they would be concerned if you would just admit, which you won't admit here, that you would abort a viable fetus for any reason if the law did not prevent it. Mr. Massey, uh, abortion is moral, it is important, it is health care, and I support people being the experts in their own lives and making decisions for themselves. It, it gives me some, some hope that you here understand that people do not support you when you abort, when you say, or if you would say, that you would abort a viable fetus for any reason, but given what you've told us in your opening statement, and knowing what you've said, we know that you would, but it does give me hope that you still know in your heart that's wrong. Ms. Mrs. Stuckley, I'm not sure, can, can I you, respond to that really quickly? If you would answer my question, you could, you could but you won't, so I'm gonna uh, use my remaining time asking, asking Mrs. Stuckey, should any reason be of a good reason for having an abortion? Absolutely not. It's a child. It's a life inside the womb from the moment of conception onward. And I'm, I'm very troubled by how flippantly she said that there are 3,000 abortions performed every year um, of defenseless human beings. And the remark that abortion is moral. Time has expired. I reckon that kind of logic driving my lifestyle. No, the time has expired. I recognize. Gave the others over two minutes over, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, we need to be fair on both sides of the aisle, please. You, you want to finish your, your... Please, I, I'd like for... No, no, finish your answer. Go ahead. I, I don't quite understand the logic of saying that killing a child inside the womb for any reason whatsoever is moral, is health care. In what other situation, besides when a child is defenseless in the womb, do we call killing someone health care? Do we call killing someone moral? Can anyone on the pro-abortion side tell me a situation outside of a defenseless child inside the womb in which it is morally justifiable to, justifiable to kill someone simply because they're not wanted. That's the answer or that's the answer that I would like. That's the question that I have. I uh, unfortunately don't think anyone's able to answer it for me. All right. I think that that's a great way to come to the conclusion of this episode of the Red Pill Patriot Show. And we've covered a lot today. And as always, I hope as we come to the close of this episode, that you've learned something more on the topic of abortion and that you feel you are a little bit better than you were before you listened to the day's show. I'm sure you have no question as to where I stand on the topic and why I'm so very passionate about it. We literally are in a war to protect and defend the most innocent and defenseless among us. Every person from conception forward has the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in America and the world over, in my opinion. 
If you would like to reach me with your thoughts about today's show, I welcome you to reach out via our website at www.redpillpatriot.net. And if you are a true fan of the show, I'd love for you to become a paid subscriber of the Red Pill Patriot Show and enjoy the benefits of being one of our great fans. Lastly, remember everyone that truth is only common sense clarified. Until next time, America. Your American dream has a white picket fence on a landscape lawn with a 30-year fixed. A pretty little wife laying out by the pool. Mercedes-Benz and a couple of kids in a fancy private school. A six-figure hobby with a 401k. Paints a pretty scene on the silver screen, but that stuff just ain't for me. My American dream is a bottle of beam turned up when the sun goes down. Kid rock and coal on the stereo, bunch of rowdy friends getting loud. Down by the riverside, girls looking fine in tank tops and cut-off jeans. You can keep your fancy fantasy, and I'll keep living my American dream. Oh, on the stereo, bunch of rowdy friends get 